Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Welcome to Sound and Vision. Recently, I was able to sit down with artist and musician Sebastian Blank at the Buck Gallery in Chelsea, where he was having an exhibition of new paintings on paper. We spoke about his youth hanging out in art school, his time as a formative member of Black Dice, his days as an assistant to Alex Katz, and the fact that he's not going to join Snapchat. Here's our conversation. I'm, I'm excited to, to chat with you because I, what I do know about your work and like finding your work, just mm-hmm. kind of happening upon it and being really into it, and not seeing a lot of it in shows and stuff, but seeing it here and there, but um, being familiar with your stuff and then learning about kind of your past in music and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. You know, I just wanted to dig into the backstory of you and like, you know, how you, where you grew up and then what you got into as far as music and art, like how you got into that process and what turned you on to it. Um, Is this going? Yeah. We're on. We're on. Yeah, we're recording. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, Well, let's see. I grew up in Baltimore Mm -hmm. and I don't think I was wasn't particularly a a big music fan or really didn't have much knowledge about it as a kid. I took piano lessons and I was, as most or a lot of kids seem to be, never wanted to practice, only only learned uh, Christmas carols (laughs) for whatever reason. I was like, I'll learn the Christmas carols. So I learned a lot, basically did that and, but was making art from like, as, as long as I can remember. My mom was in art school at Micah, mm-hmm. and we lived two blocks away. So on days that I was out of kindergarten class early, like half day or whatever, she would take me to classes with her, and I would just like hang out and draw. So the, the art school environment mm-hmm. and sort of like coming across people who were artists or studying to be artists was like, totally not not every day but very common experience for me and yeah. totally comfortable so much so that like at that point I knew that I wanted to go to art school like, right and everything in between was like an impediment and a pain in the ass basically um was the music the first real um you playing music was that lesson based or was yeah. it at home no that was lesson based but i mean it was and i took p- piano for quite a few years but i really did not grow years. at all years Whoa. years I made it years of two being lessons. like I had two years lessons. of being mediocre <laughs> um, and then when i was 16 we moved to brooklyn new york and as sort of i sort of, i think out of guilt my parents, I'd been asking for a guitar for a long time mm-hmm. because, you know, as a teenager, it just seemed like you so much cooler than, than, uh, than playing piano. And also just kind of, I was listening to a lot of classic rock, like guitar based music. Yeah. So it seemed like there was the natural magnetic pull to it. Um, and so I think out of guilt, they decided that it was time to get me a guitar. So I spent a lot of time starting like at age 16 just when I wasn't drawing I was playing guitar and I had no ability to listen to a song 
and um, figure it out. Mm-hmm. So I just started writing songs right away. And they were, I mean, totally horrible, but super fun. And at least gave me a way to kind of practice the same thing or chord progression over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the time I got to uh, college, I went to RISD, and music was just everybody was you know, striving to be in a band. And it was a real struggle to find people to play with at first, people that had a common interest in what they were playing. But there was an intense noise scene in Providence. Mm-hmm. So no matter what your initial leanings were, I think, for, for all of the people who were playing music there, everybody ended up kind of in a, like a punk, hardcore noise um, output of what yeah. they were making. What year is, was that? So I started in 94 mm-hmm. and then played in a bunch of different bands, um, mostly like kind of like noisy pop punk stuff inspired by like the jam. Yeah. Um, but definitely like way nastier. Like we right. couldn't, nobody could really play very well. Um, so it definitely had, and nobody could sing. It was like, it seemed like the, the hardest thing to find were people who could actually sing and people who could play drums. So like there were like three drummers who played in every band yeah. and then everybody's vocals were essentially like sort of like unwound kind of screamy yeah. or discord discord. Exactly. Um, is that what you were listening to back then? No, not really. I was listening to like indie rock, like pavement and yeah. Sebado and dinosaur junior. Um, which I didn't really discover until high school, till I moved to New York. Mm-hmm. And that became like a real exciting, you know, shift from classic rock, like The Doors and Leonard Skinner and stuff that, and Led Zeppelin and, you know, stuff that was like cool and that I really, some of which I still like. Yeah. But for the most part, it was kind of, it was easy, accessible music. It was just on the radio. Right. So it was sort of like, that's, it was the simplest thing to learn about. And, um, I had my brother, my oldest brother was really into music for a long time. So gr- like from the time I was like seven or eight, the things that were most commonly played at my house were like OMD and New Order and like British kind of, um, it didn't go f- as far back as like Joy Division, but it was, you know, the Depeche Mode, kind Depeche of era. Mode, yeah. which is great, great stuff yeah. that I still totally love and have like a nostalgic attachment to, um, but also think is just awesome material um, and some great songs. But the like the first discovery of music on my own was indie rock, mm-hmm. and Pavement was like totally eye-opening to me. Yeah, Slanted really and cool. Enchanted, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I remember getting my hands on that and just being like, this doesn't sound like anything else yeah. that. I'm familiar with, which yeah. is kind of exciting. And still very like guitar, you know, he, he, I think Stephen Malcolmus is an awesome guitar player. Yeah. So it was also kind of like a very easy bridge to go from there, from, from classic rock to like that sort of indie rock, like yeah. guitar indie rock. And then somehow just going to shows in Providence, what initially seemed like so noisy and abrasive and hard to understand by like the third time, fourth time you're at a show like that, you understand the vocabulary and it becomes like you hear the melody and the, the rhythm in it in a different way. Yeah. And it's just like total absorption that just, you can't help, but like get excited about it. It's like the, 
when uh, like an undercover cop or whatever goes into a situation and they're they just end up becoming like the criminal yeah. you know what I mean yeah, so yeah. that's, that's sort of what happened yeah and were those so do you think those bands were more influenced by the limitations of technique or were they kind of listening to stuff that was kind of out and you know noise related because I'm trying to think of what noise or out bands were kind of doing I mean, that back then I think that Definitely, there were people like Force Field was there at that time, yeah. and so they were doing stuff in Lightning Bolt, um, and then Black Dice kind of came up, which was the band that I was in, came yeah. up, um, just as it was like so organic the way that everybody was kind of hanging out and playing shows, and it was like there would be a bill that somebody was putting or like a show someone wanted to put it on in a basement, and they were like, "Well, you guys keep talking about." wanting to play a show do you you should do it yeah. and like that was like you know it was very so I was in bands that would last like two months and then we'd play a show and then for whatever reason we wouldn't do another one but that's I think in a way is in part why Black Dice ended up actually becoming a, a real band was because there were opportunities to play shows like yeah. so instead of just kind of messing around we would play a show and see what happened and Bjorn Copeland and his brother Eric had been playing stuff on their own. Mm -hmm. um, and then when it really seemed like they were going to be a band, I was like, okay, now he, Bjorn is my roommate. So yeah. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be in this band too now, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So, and then it just took us some time to find a drummer. Yeah. And then once that happened, we just, we went to two different drummers before or actually excuse me one drummer before we settled on uh playing with hisham brian gibson who plays bass in uh lightning bolt yeah was playing with us mm -hmm. but there there was always so much um tension between us and brian chippendale mm -hmm. because they're like they were practicing every day for like two or three hours didn't they live in her is it i feel like there used to be a place where they all lived and played and made oh, yeah. work and it was kind of, or at least there was the perception that there was like a commune kind of feel to what was going on there. Yeah, there, there was. They lived in a place called Fort Thunder. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Ryan Chippendale lived there and that's where uh, Forcefield, a lot of the guys from Forcefield lived there and that was also one of the reasons why shows were happening so often because they were putting on a lot of shows there. Yeah. So, you know, it would be like some band like Carp or something um, yeah, would come I'm, through and then they would like need another band to yeah. open. So it was, there were, it wasn't huge bands that were coming through, but it was like, you know, pretty big size indie bands that were going from New York to Boston and needed like a bridge show. Like Rye Coalition pops into my head. Yeah, like stuff like that. like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Fort Thunder was just putting on a lot of events and it would sometimes it would be so much so that you know bands going through they have an open date and they would put like organize the show within two or three days mm -hmm. so it was really just like do you guys want to do this or and it was kind of a situation where they would collect money at the door mm -hmm. but typically it was not a huge money-making opportunity it was just like a great place where everybody was really excited about being in a place where you could kind of go wild yeah. and the show 
it was almost like there was always a party there and the show was sometimes secondary and sometimes that would take over the situation. But it wasn't, for me, it wasn't always about the music that was happening. It was about the social situation. The atmosphere. Yeah, Yeah. the atmosphere. Was the music, I mean, I know there's a few bands that we're talking about. Was a lot of the music improvised or was it all kind of... Uh, I think, I think it was, you know, it was improvised in the way that, um, everybody, well, I mean, I can't speak to how like, uh, force field or, or lightning bolt actually was writing the music, but from my understanding, it was a lot of improvisation, yeah. but based on parts, you right. know, like working stuff out beforehand. And then when the way black dice was working at that point was, it was very much like a song, like a that was that was sort of we would we would have 15 songs and we'd play them in 10 minutes so we kind of were like okay well we got to do something else <laughs> right right <laughs> and then that was what led us to improvise we just kind of especially when we were on tour we'd drive 10 hours to get to a show and then to only play for 10 minutes didn't even just feel like a rip off for the audience it felt like a rip off for us like right. we did all this work like let's do something fun so we started doing a lot more of improvising and just kind of filling not even filling the gaps i think for a while it sort of was in two two distinct sets like the first one was we play through our songs and the second one we play like 10 minutes worth of improvised noise yeah some nights cooler than others obviously but, but if i'm if i'm like a RISD student at that time and i go out and i see you know, Lightning Bolt play mm-hmm. twice in three weeks, it's probably going to be a slightly different show, right? Or at least, or, yeah. do, or is it pretty tight? I, th- I, th- I think so. I mean, obviously, honestly, some of the uh, memories are a little hazy. Yeah. Like, there was a lot of, uh, like, drinking and, and stuff going on, at least for me. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of other people, too, which I think made, made for wild, wild shows. Um, but, yeah, I think that, Everybody was also, I think it got to a point where everyone was really like thinking critically about each other and not in like um, being critical and judgmental, but like actually really paying attention to Mm -hmm. what each other were doing. So you definitely would hear like a song change or song grow. And I I remember even simple things like if somebody all of a sudden used like a distortion pedal in a way that they hadn't, like that would be like a big move. Yeah. Like, do you remember the band Les Savi Fave? Yeah, yeah. I remember them. They uh, was in this band with uh, this guy Christy Caracas, who mm-hmm. now does Super Jail, that that show that's on like oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Adult Swim. Yep. He's truly a, a mad madman. Um, but he was like obsessed with Les Savi Fave. So when they were like changing stuff, he would always like notice and be like, "We should try something like that." So. Yeah, you yeah. pick up on things like that. Yeah. Things. It's like when you tour with a band yeah. and they add a little little something to their song during the tour and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, that's different. You know, it gets really exciting. It's kind of cool, though. You really study their yeah. their songs and you kind of, I guess if you're in the same town growing up, you know, in all the music I ever played, I was never really provincial. In a way. Like I never mm-hmm. had a place where I was based at, where there were other bands I was playing with, you know what I mean? Right. And the bands that I had, we were kind of nomadic in a way, mm-hmm. except for when we were in New Haven for a year and a half, which wasn't really a scene at all. I don't mm-hmm. think there were many bands at all right. there. But um, yeah, that's a, it's a, a really interesting thing when you're touring with people and they slightly change or like they're growing, yeah. their songs are growing and you get to hear that in person. It's kind of influences the organic process of writing music. Totally. 
I think another thing that's really interesting about bands when they're touring, in, in terms of like visuals, is I know that when Hisham, mm-hmm. who was the yeah. drummer in um, in Black Dice, we would go on tour with like Chick 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 and mm-hmm. a bunch of different bands. This was like very early on in Black Dice, and he would we would see the same show and pretty much not not exactly the same set, but a very similar set. So he knew after like you know seeing them a few times when the right moment was to like shoot the picture mm-hmm. which is such a it's it seems so clear and obvious when when you're observing somebody do it like oh of course he's going to get a bit better picture because he knows like the big chorus is about right, to kick right. in and people the the band is going to like you know start doing rock and roll moves yeah, or whatever yeah. you know so but i i find that that's something that it's also something you don't think about at all because unless you're in that tour mode, you don't get the familiarity with what a band is doing. So I think that really like great photography of bands happens a lot when someone's like just a photographer on the road with them. Yeah. So they know they not not to say that every night is the same, but they just know what's what to expect and when the like, the big hits are gonna happen. Yeah, they kind of understand when when the moments arises. Right, you know, exactly. And the, the dynamic of everything. Like, his is a part where it's going to get intense. Right. And, you know. and not even so much, like, like with, a, with, a, with a big band that maybe everybody has heard all their songs. Like, it's probably even... Maybe it's a little bit easier, but with, like, a, a small indie band that's, like, touring for the first time or first few times, well, people don't know their material as much. I think it sort of takes somebody who's, like, a, a, a friend... To yeah. get those really good photos. Yeah, yeah. Hisham has got tons of awesome photos of bands that we were on the road I can't with imagine. early on. Yeah, he seems to, to sort of. Well, he seems like a great photographer. Yeah, just no, from totally. The social media stuff that he's yeah. sharing out, and um, he seems like he's had a lot of experiences. Definitely, <laughs> with traveling and yeah. collaborating, and you know, doing a lot of stuff. Totally. So back in those days, you were you were playing bass, right? I was playing bass. Um, is that your, I mean, because you started playing guitar when you were young, like re- um, regular guitar, right? I think I, I started playing bass just because that was like the thing that fit. So uh, initially Bjorn was playing guitar, Eric was playing drums, and I was playing bass, mm-hmm. and we didn't really have a singer. And then some, at some point, I don't remember why Eric just decided that he should sing. Mm-hmm. And then we... So we started playing with Brian Gibson and we played, I think we played like three or four shows with Brian and he's an incredible drummer, like really was, was totally nuts. Um, and then Hisham joined and everything really kind of like clicked. Like we became like a band versus just a bunch of dudes who were playing every once in a while. Yeah. Um, and we like Bjorn was just super super serious about the whole project and started booking shows and there was a list that was going around Fort Thunder um, of like local punk houses and stuff and and small venues that might be willing to put on shows so he got that list and he booked us a show over spring break of our senior year and we just kind of like went out on the road and we never done it we didn't make any money we didn't have anything to sell I was we just say, kind of did like, you record it all no we didn't we yeah. didn't have anything so i think no merch on the road <laughs> no merch um 
so I, I, I became the, the bass player just kind of like as default that Bjorn was, was writing almost all the material and was playing guitar. And he was a very like rough guitar player. Like it was still very new to him. So I think it had like this kind of primitive feel. Yeah. Um, and I think when Hisham started playing drums, we, I'd like to think that we were like a reliable rhythm section, but I also think it was pretty, <laughs> pretty chaotic uh-huh. and shows tended to sort of, uh, we could play a song and then, you know, it would also fall apart like halfway through and not necessarily, look, we were really like very confrontational and sort of physical in the way that we played and it was a lot of flailing around and I, I always tried to imagine that the my bass was more like a chainsaw mm-hmm. that had like gotten out of control and I had to kind of like hold this energy so it was sort of like an act to make the 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 bass flail around but it was also like well the music has to look in our show the way it sounds right so that just seemed to make sense were there some bands that you were either playing with or that you checked out that you really liked the way or that you guys all collectively like the vibe of how they were performing how they were or how it was coming off i mean i think it, we for me i you know it's like just thinking about stuff like iggy pop like way way back just yeah. being sort of it's the show wasn't just about playing the songs but it was about kind of like putting people in like an uncomfortable spot you know making them kind of unsure what was going to happen just to give it really was a matter of like matching the the tone of the music with like the setting and trying to have control over that yeah um and i think that part of what ended up happening was we definitely did not have any control over that well we didn't have control over ourselves and that was kind of the edge that ended up materializing from yeah. that that's cool i remember growing up in pittsburgh and going to see indie shows and our our kind of band was Don Caballero, you know, mm-hmm. and seeing those guys play. And then Carl Hendrick's trio, there were bands like that mm-hmm. that were playing that had a really great stage presence, you know, right. kind of, um, it, it felt like their performance matched the music. And then right. Ian from Don Cab went on to do Storm and Stress, and that right. was a completely different, I don't know if you ever, have I, you ever I, seen I, that? I saw them, I think I saw them play in Providence years and years ago. Yeah. But a really dynamic yeah, live yeah. performance, complete but, with like cell phone call into the amplifier that was right. broadcast, and you know, it, yeah, it was just a really different I, experience going to see them play. There was definitely also an aspect I think in the whole scene in Providence that was very much like, what can we do that is wilder than the next band? Right. And I think in some ways it has to do with what Lightning Bolt was doing. Because Lightning Bolt were like super virtuo- virtuoso musicians. Like they, Brian Chibineau, have you ever seen Lightning Bolt play? I've never seen him play. They're, I haven't seen them in years. But it's like watching like two insane athletes like do like what they're best at. Like Brian Chibineau plays for like 45 minutes and he just does not stop. And then Brian Gibson is like keeping up on bass. And it's, it's, it's super musical but it's also insanely physical yeah so i think the the way that a lot of us compensated with not necessarily matching that like level of musicianship 
was like, well, we got to do something, you know? So, <laughs> so we started like just going wild and there's this band called Landed. Um, and they, I think went the farthest in terms of just like going nuts where one of the, it was one show and I think it was like force field played and Landed played and, um, Six Finger Satellite, do you remember mm -hmm. that band? Yeah, yeah. Who, who are also like very intense, right. kind of insane, uh, confrontational stage presence. Um, they played a show together. I might that lineup might be wrong, but I'm I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And Force Field in this one show decided that they were going to try and amplify the sound of Ara's scooter. Uh -huh. So instead, it didn't amplify anything. They just pumped in, like, exhaust, exhaust into, oh, nice. into the, the club. So that was really disgusting and unpleasant. And then the next thing that happened was Dan St. Jake's, the singer of Landed, decided he was going to set himself on fire. And he, oh, like, man. looked up some way to do it safely, which, of course, did not which work. Which doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. So... He actually set himself on fire and like burnt his oh. chest and back severely. But he's like, <laughs> he's the nicest guy and also sort of the most chill dude you'll ever meet. Mm -hmm. um, when he's and, not ablaze. Yeah, exactly. So, but yeah, he goes nuts, like yeah. truly insane when he's performing. So they did that and we kind of were like not really going that to the... I don't that level of danger where it's just like fire is just seems like a bad thing for a venue or for a person like it's yeah. just not a good idea. Um, but so he set himself on fire and I think that maybe put a cap on everybody's like well we don't have to go that crazy yeah let's tone it down a notch yeah <laughs> and then the next day was Black Dice did our, the first recordings that we ever made with Dan as the the producer and the engineer and he's walking around oh, with his arms out. <laughs> Kind of just like you mean with, those, like, <laughs> with like casts like on both arms. No, he didn't go. To, he didn't go to the hospital. He just like kind no, of just dealt with it. Yeah, he just went. Then like the next day was his a normal day, and he's yeah. like, "Oh yeah, we'll still do the recording session." And he's like pussy, and it was oh, just oh, it was nasty. That's brutal. I'm trying yeah. to think of where like well, you said Iggy. Like where mm -hmm. that's like you know where was the genesis of like. The craziness. I mean, the germs, maybe? Maybe the germs, G. G. yeah. Gigi Allen. I mean, I, I like the germs. I don't really know Gigi Allen, like, as the music. Right. I know that what he's, like, what was did. capable of doing right. and what well, he did. Well, that's pretty much what but, he was. Yeah, I guess that's what it was. <laughs> um, oh, sorry. Yeah, um, there was, a, there was a, a push, I think, at that time to have... Well, there was a lot of, like, anger. To, I remember going to see shows with, like, you know, like I was saying, with those kind of Discord, a lot mm -hmm. of, like... I don't even know indie, like post-punk, I guess, indie stuff, but yeah. it was just real aggressive, and there was a lot of rambunctious live shows going on back in those yeah. days. I'm trying to think. Oh, and we played a show one time with Arabon Radar. Have uh -huh. you ever oh, seen yeah, they were, they were a Providence band. We played shows with them a ton. Yeah, we played a show with them, and that was pretty pretty interesting. It was yeah. different. I mean, at that point, I was in a band with, it was a guitar, cello, and drums, so mm -hmm. it was pretty, you know, mild. Yeah. You know, not quite so raucous but i think that the whole scene was just kind of explosive it was about like trying to just be as not 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 just be as wild as you 
wanted to be but like make music and then make sure that if you were making wild music you were also like a wild performer right it just kind of was and everybody was making wild music that was pretty far out there so i think that everyone it, it just kind of was a natural progression even though it maybe looking back on it seems like a a bunch of kind of crazy choices yeah they, they i think everyone understood that there was logic to it but I don't know if it will, like the logic necessarily holds up. I wonder if that exists today anymore. I mean, I'm not on the indie circuit in basements, but I wonder if that's even know. around anymore, or if it's laptops and Twitter. You know, like I people. sort of like that's the sense that I get. It's very like laptop. Not a lot of live bands. Yeah. But I don't know. Like, you know, we weren't necessarily. We started listening to more punk stuff and more hardcore stuff after we were playing. Right. than when we were actually like it wasn't like the music led us to this music we were fans of led us to the music that we were playing it's almost like we started doing something and we we're like oh what is this and then we were like oh well, we should listen to black flag and the germs and, right. and bands like that yeah, so yeah. it's sort of like we started doing research almost after the fact mm -hmm. um i mean i think that in our house it was a lot of like elliot smith and like uh um, beat happening, yeah. like stuff like that, like very minimal kind of soft, generally very lyrical. And that did not present itself in our music at all. Yeah. It's funny how that can happen where you'll write stuff or make music and it's, it feels intrinsic or it's mm -hmm. just something you come up with and then people will respond to it and that takes you in a totally different totally. direction or opens your eyes to things that maybe other people think have influenced mm -hmm. you. I guess that happens in artwork too, where People are like, oh, have you seen this artist? But right. like, I remember someone mentioning Darudi column in relation mm -hmm. to my guitar playing, and I had never heard of them in my life. And I was like, I still oh, never yeah, heard. Yeah. <laughs> Those guys are great. You know, uh -huh. I had no idea who they were, so uh -huh. I had to go to other music and pick up an album and right. figure out what it was, and then started getting into that, and then listening to sort of African high life and that kind of guitar oh, right. playing, all sure. sorts of stuff that I'd never really known. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like the influences people put on you or think that you've had and then you listen to it and you're like oh yeah I get why people yeah. think that and this is really great stuff I mean I think that that also is something that is it makes sense if you go into a situation and you want to make something that's for you is like stretching yourself mm -hmm. then the reason that you you know it might take you somewhere that you weren't expecting so you need that outside like eye or ear to say, well, this is what you're doing now. So you should really like look at this other stuff yeah. that clearly has a connection. You should know about this stuff. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And then that helps to sort of like solidify your thinking. But I think it requires a, like a leap of faith to, to start making something that you feel like isn't necessarily like your fallback uh, mode of, of, being creative yeah yeah allowing that influence in yeah so not to change gears too much but with your artwork back then what were you kind of when you were younger what were you doing well um i mean when i was w really younger i was just like drawing comic books and and that was like my the big, earliest influence the big yeah biggest influence definitely pretty much how i learned to draw was just from copying comic books um, but even in college, like on tour, I was just doing the same thing that I'm doing now for the most part, painting, um, 
the like people that we were around yeah. painting a lot of doing a lot of portraits of my friends um did not so many like paintings certainly no paintings on the road but i would do sketches and then i would get home and i'd make paintings of those sketches and sometimes just paint from imagination based on what happened or like from memory mm-hmm. um and i was painting a lot from memory at that point but it was very much i think in a funny way the experience of being in black dice was the most uh, alien of um, to to what my normal and natural instinct would be to to make stuff. I I really like um, relying on the the objects and people and experiences that are immediate to me yeah. to sort of. Um, influence what I what I'm making it's like you're responding to what your environment is like yeah. your direct environment and what totally means. totally well, what about when you were in school I mean were you doing that were you making sketches when you were playing music and then taking that in the studio and making work from that basically pretty much yeah, yeah. it was I mean now that that I have you know or everyone has iPhones or phones that they can take pictures from mm-hmm. it's it's a different way of like collecting those those memories but back then it was all like sketches and and memory so yeah. sometimes i would it, it, it was a little bit more um inspired by uh bonar i think then which has a, a sort of like the, there's so much fracturing in those images that it's it was easy to kind of look at those whether or not he's painting from observation for me to then kind of make it about finding a, a memory mm-hmm. and, and like trying to make it um, real, realized on a canvas. Not to say that I was succeeding by any means. Um, but I also, I think, was probably painting from observation a little bit more than to... Were you working in a similar material and scale than what you do now? Um, I, not, I, I did actually do a lot of collage stuff in college. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after I graduated, uh, I was working only in oil painting because I thought it was like serious, right? You know, like real artists right. make make That's oil what paintings. you're supposed to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I started working for Alex Katz right after after school, mm-hmm. and so that also gave me like a very distorted sense of scale in my own yeah. work, where I was like going and stretching canvases for him that are like 20 feet long and like you know maybe not that big, but like. 15 feet long and 10 feet high. So I would, I didn't go up that big. (laughs) I went way larger than my space or my ability really should have, uh, or really allowed. Um, And I'm, so I made a series of, like a a pretty long series of nudes in, um, behind a shower curtain. Uh So it was about kind of, revealing an image and hiding an image and pattern and figuration and abstraction all together and 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 trying to just come to terms with what an abstract image is and what a figure figurative image is and I didn't really want to be making portraiture but it was still kind of working from everyday life yeah. in terms of thematic um material did uh, working with cats, did that have any impact as far as like 
you know, the way you're thinking about painting at all? Because I know he has a, doesn't he have a very specific, like, 24-hour window? Like, he doesn't want to spend more than a day on a painting. And right. He's efficient with his brush strokes and his colors, you know. I think the, 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 the very first day that I was in his studio, or maybe, like, first month, I remember having, or him talking to me about surface mm-hmm. and how important the surface of a painting is and that the that initial surface is really what dictates what the final surface is. Right. So if you want to, you know, have a very matte surface, you have to have, you know, you can just paint right on gesso, and that'll be, you know, so absorbent that the paint then looks matte. And that's really the only surface that I had was familiar with at that point. Right. Um, I guess I'd painted a, I painted a little on oil prime canvas, but it was kind of pre-primed oil. And um, Alex's process was so specific that it made it very clear that his final touch was that unique to him because he started from the ground up and yeah. that made that, you know, that, that very fresh touch and that sort of like one, one touch that he has mm-hmm. in terms of being like first touch, last touch, um, look the way it does. Yeah. And I, I definitely also want to have a, f- a fresh looking surface. But just concentrating on surface for the first time was, was a, a big eye opener. The importance of like that yeah. aspect of the that, work. Right? That, that was the most, um, you know, I, I think I worked for him for like two and a half years. And other than like his studio practice, that was the thing that was the most um, influential yeah just just like being conscious and aware that what you start off with is gonna dictate what you end up with yeah um and it sort of makes i mean it it makes sense in so many ways in so many other art making things like with music if you're going to play on a guitar you're going to end up with something very different sounding than if you're writing something on a piano yeah if so, you record on two-inch tape, it's going to sound a lot different than exactly. going into, you know, garage band. Exactly. Yeah. So. Did but did he make all of his paintings, or were you actually painting? His oh paintings? yeah, I was just like stretching. Right. And like he's gesso-ing. the only one who. Does he's the, the only one who paints. I think that there was a another assistant um, whose name's Stuart Elster, who's a painter, mm-hmm. um, and he, I think maybe actually put some paint on the canvas but it was like trace to, amounts it was yeah it was like so we we would do like the pouncing of his image so we would transfer like with pigment yeah. his from his cartoons to the canvas so i did that so i put pigment on but i didn't put right. any paint on and yeah. then i think stuart every once in a while would trace but i don't know if that's true wait that so how did you do, this is before i mean not to date us but before digital projectors right was he oh, using yeah. an overhead to do it or just cartooning cartooning? Cartooning, yeah, like Renaissance style. Cutting cartooning. holes out. And Doing the little like, wow. you know, wheel thing and then yeah. pouncing with the pigment bag. Yeah, so it's very old school yeah. and like like pretty cool to sort of see that and yeah. and understand. And even like thinking about stuff like that. I, I, I didn't really like, in some ways I feel like I went to art school 
I don't know what your experience was like in undergrad. Terrible. No, I'm Terrible. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, was very, it was more that you are having the time to work yeah. than they're actually like helping you learn how to do anything. No, I was joke that I didn't learn anything about physically painting right. in school. I mean, I, I, but that's not totally true. But I mean, with supports and, and kind of learning how to stretch, make stretchers and priming right. stuff, we got a, I got a pretty good you know, education in that. But yeah, as far as like experimenting, we were kind of on our own in that, you know, we just did that in the studio and you played with materials and you kind of found out what worked and what didn't work. The word archival didn't float around in undergrad too much, but then in grad school was much more, you know, there was a class for that if you wanted to be, Mm -hmm. you know, more savvy to that stuff. But I kind of just did my thing. I mean, I often joke around, you know, when I'm talking to people about my work with this fact that, you know, I started using tape right before I graduated from undergrad. I was mm-hmm. making these paintings that were based on my house in Pittsburgh growing up. All the colors were these craft colors that my mom used to use to paint the house, like the aesthetic mm-hmm. of our house. And uh, there were like architectural you know, uh, images that resounded with that space. And um, I started using tape because it just made sense for some of the stuff right. I was doing. And um, you know, it wasn't that... I wasn't that particular about it. Like I was just doing it the way I thought you could do it. Mm -hmm. And then I had in my first year of grad school, Matthew Ritchie came as a visiting artist and he came in and he said, "Um, Oh cool. Okay. So we only have like a half hour here. Do you want me to tell you how to make your lines look better? Or do you want me to talk about content? And I was like, um, (laughs) I was like content because that's what I'm supposed to say. Right. Right. Sure. So I was like, uh, yeah, content. Um, but in the back of my mind, I was like, what did he mean? Like, right. oh, yeah, I guess my lines are kind of crappy. You know, why are they fuzzy? And, sure. you know. and then uh, Bob Reed came into my studio and he's like, oh, you just put matte medium down first and it seals it. And then mm-hmm. you could get a nice crisp line. I was like, finally, someone taught me something useful right. about the right. physical act of painting after right. all these years. But, yeah, you, you really learn a lot about things through trial and error and just, you know, going that way. Totally. Yeah. And I, I think that it... It also, you know, you can you can learn about paint and how to make like an oil painting or whatever. If you you, there's always somebody who's going to be able to answer the question, even if it doesn't happen when you're at school. Yeah. Especially like if you go and you have the opportunity to work for an artist, that's really like it is a great chance to to learn technical things. And even technical questions that you can ask yourself, not in terms of how something is made, but like, if I do this, what will happen next? Right. Where, I, I don't know if I did so much experimenting in that way mm-hmm. in, uh, in school. It was more like, how do I get this stuff out of the tube and not look like brown shit? <laughs> you right, know? Right. It's just like, that was, that was a challenge. Yeah. Um, but I, I had some... Um, some very simple eye-opening things like that you could paint on oil priming. The first time I was in my painting class as a sophomore, I was like having a terrible time. I really was not sure if I even wanted to be there. And my painting professor, Dennis Congdon, mm-hmm. um, just was like, look, you're really struggling. Why don't you just try painting on this? And he took a piece of oil prime linen, just that he had, like, that was, you know, six inches wide or something. He's like, just just use this. So I worked on that, and I was like, this is so much better. This is, like, actually a nice experience versus, like, fighting gesso and trying. 
which I, I think that that is, I don't know, this is probably so boring for anybody who's... <laughs> no, no, not at all. This is the good stuff. interested in uh, that sort of stuff. But um, it really does. Material makes such a huge difference. A huge difference. It, that's everything, yeah. honestly. Like, if you have to pay attention to your materials if you want your work to be read in the way that you at least are attempting to. Right. Well, the difficult thing is you don't know that until you bump it up. You know right. what I mean? Like, yeah. you don't know what playing guitar is like on a nice like Takamine or like a, a Gretsch guitar. If totally. you're playing like, you know, the, the Yamaha, the, like, yeah, the, like the store-bought, like 10 year old yeah. strings, you know, Lesson I mean? one. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you don't Definitely. really know until you, you know, upgrade. And, um, I think that's something that unfortunately a lot of people like young students, they can't afford the materials right. or whatever, but then they get a little taste of, you know, like if they're working in acrylics, like using golden, it's just so much right. better than, right. you know, your super cheap stuff that it makes a big difference. You know. I think one thing that I feel like I wish I had s someone had said to me when I was in undergrad is don't try to mix so much. You really don't need to. Oh, really? Just go yeah. out of the tube more? Not, not out of the tube, but like I, I definitely want to preserve the intensity of the color. Mm -hmm. And there's this sort of like, I don't know if it's a, an, an impressionist kind of idea of, of painting from observation and, and capturing light, but that you want to, like, if you're painting from observation, you want to match that, like, soft gray mauve kind of color. Right. And then if you're not careful, everything just pulls that way because you don't know how to keep your brushes clean or whatever. So I would say if you're a student, don't overmix. Yeah. It's a, it's a very simple thing, but like even if you just keep one of the colors, like if you put out eight colors or four colors, if you keep one a little bit more potent, right. your painting is going to look better. Yeah. And keeping your surface clean, you know, yeah. like just always washing your brushes and things like that. That stuff yeah, gets totally. muddy and it gets funky really yeah. quickly. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I still could do that better than I, than I do, honestly. Yeah, I think there's you know, some young people, though, that don't learn how to mix colors. It's amazing to me. And I notice a lot of times now with, like, younger students or young, you know, people who are into art, it's, I don't know, I talk about this a lot, how, like, history to them isn't very linear. It's mm -hmm. more of kind of, you know, learning through Google or, like, sure. you know, everything's kind of instantaneous and you get this quick read on things, you mm -hmm. know. But um, the learning how to, like, if you want to mix a cool, dark color as opposed to a warm, dark color, like, you know how to do that. You know right. what that means. And, you right. know, I think those fundamentals are kind of a good thing to have, you know. Definitely. I, I have to say that one of the best classes I had, the really, the great classes I had at RISD were, there were some figure drawing classes that were awesome. Mm -hmm. And I love drawing from observation. It's like, it's, I... I'm sad that I don't do it more often. It's truly like a great joy for me. Yeah. But then color theory was awesome. It's key. Yeah. And yeah. it just, it's, it makes, they should offer that as like the first thing. I don't think we had it till we were juniors or seniors. It makes your life so much easier to have an understanding of what you're doing yeah. when you're trying to reach these goals and, and color and light and stuff to actually have a plan to yeah. get there. Even if you don't get there, at least you, there's like some understanding that you're gonna take the choose the right path, you know? Yeah. Um, so I had that assignment where you take Colorade and you reproduce yeah. a painting with it, which mm -hmm. I hated. <laughs> and then five years later, 
I'm making collages with color right. and it's a huge part of my work. You know? Totally. I mean, but just understanding it, the how to mix colors through putting colors next to each other is right. really like, you know, when you're doing it, it's tedious, I guess, but down the line, you're like, oh, now I have kind of an understanding of how colors work next to each other, which yeah. is a, a thing, you know. This to I totally am like, the color aid is basically like the basis for how I make my work. Like, I don't use color aid, but I paint sections of paper yeah. in the same effect, you know, the right. same purpose. Um, but I, since I'm painting the paper, I'm also getting like the texture and the brush stroke yeah. um, that you don't get on, in color aid. And yeah. I like that you can cut a brush stroke is like a, is like a, a cool idea to yeah, me. Just definitely. Like, and putting different cuts of brush strokes next to each other. Yeah, yeah. It's nice being able to talk about it with your painting here about seven inches away from us <laughs> <laughs> in the gallery setting. Yes. Yeah. So we're, I should mention we're sitting in the buck gallery in the middle of your show on a Monday. So it's nice and quiet, but being surrounded by the images, um, is really cool. Did you, um, for this work, did this come from a specific group of time and you just worked on this collectively or has this been something you've been working in and out of because there's some figuration, there's mm -hmm. some landscape? and um, Well, basically, this most of the work, I think, is from the last year. There's some that are probably a little older. Mm -hmm. um, but what I try and do as just like a regular studio practice is to... I'm painting autobiographically and I try to make a painting a day. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the reasons why the majority of the work is small. Yeah. So that like that goal in the short window that I have in studio is more likely to be met. The larger pieces take a number, of, you know, take quite, quite a bit longer, um, but still are relatively quick in their execution. Um, but really, I, I sort of just fall back on in terms of um, subject matter, some pretty like standard painting uh, themes like still life. Mm -hmm. um, but then I, you know, I stalk my kids basically and do a lot of paintings of them and paint a lot of paintings of my wife and other. This show doesn't have quite as many, um, but I'll, I'll, I often paint people who I'm friendly with who are musicians mm -hmm. or other artists that, you know, I like their work. Um, I'm not sure in a funny way why this show is so much about, like about family. Mm -hmm. I mean, I paint my family all the time, yeah. but I, I, there is like a slightly wider, um, group of evil <laughs> wow. that, that I, that I, um, that pose for me every once in a while. Um, the light is such a big part of these pieces. I think the light, the light that you're capturing, that you're alluding to in it with color and just, there's, it's just. It feels like a real main component of these. I definitely want to capture um, a light that is, and thank you for saying that, um, a light that isn't exactly observed light, mm -hmm. but is more kind of um, maybe maybe like a, that gives a, an intimate feeling. Um, so I use this Japanese paper that ha comes in a, in a variety of different pigments as the initial um, color on, yeah. on the ground. So I stretch that, I stretch paper and then I stretch that over top or, or like glue that down over top of the paper. 
And <clears throat> for a lot of them, that kind of becomes the mid-tone where I can then do high key notes yeah. um, it's with like the a collage. Almost. It's yeah, like that, exactly. that exactly. base color that you can... Your lights can be a lot lighter, but right. there's a warmth to it because it, it's usually warm, right, that paper? Like this kind of yeah, yeah. warm tone. And then there's some... There, like this one, this landscape of the two boys throwing stones mm-hmm. um, is on a, on a dark kind of gray paper. Mm-hmm. So that one is actually done by painting the landscape and then cutting the, the silhouettes of the figures out mm-hmm. and then applying the landscape on top. So it's, a, it's, it's using the dark ground as, as like a shadow and then putting the painting on. And I, like the back of that piece of paper, I even paint white mm-hmm. so that it's, it is brilliant enough to actually have like its own light and isn't influenced right. then by the gray paper. Yeah. Um, but it's just sort of, you know, it, one of the one thing that I think is a is a really good way to, if you get to studio and you're sort of a little lost, is you do something that you're you normally do, mm-hmm. then do the opposite. Right. So all of these other ones are I'm applying light or I'm applying the image and building the image up. This one I was actually like subtracting the figures and just doing like a one shot deal for how to make the image. Yeah. Kind of taking away. Yeah. And some of these do it looks as if you know, there's, it, time becomes an element because there's figures that are moving through space and time. Mm-hmm. Is that something you've always done or is that? Uh, I, th- I started doing that maybe last summer mm-hmm. and in part it was just, it was, there was a few thoughts and honestly some, one of them was like comic books. My kids are obsessed with comic books so yeah. that sort of, the, the motion, the way that a lot of motion is described in comic books is that sort of that it fades right. as the like the time has elapsed more, and you see like the the fist is in the is in the foreground. You, right. see, you know the reverberated faded edge. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's part of it. But also, I like the idea of um, showing a, like a non-event happen over time. Like the the ones that you're speaking of are my my wife is picking up her son, and that's like you know that's like an everyday occurrence. But it's not like a huge narrative story, and it's like the time elapsement is kind of just showing the beginning of that process and the and then like walking off basically. Right. So Which, I thought it was well, funny to. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, funny and playful to kind of have, of, a narrative that is so insignificant be like the the focus of a painting. Right. Yeah. And um, as us with children know how painful those 10 to 15 minutes of trying to get someone dressed. <laughs> yeah. It's actually yes. way longer than we'd like it to be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although that's a pretty serene version of that. Uh, well, that, of what I think normally that's happens. at the end of the process. <laughs> oh, okay. That's the takeaway. <laughs> I love how too, that her, the stripes in her stockings kind of like fade out too. And it almost becomes like you could crop that and it would be an abstract painting. You know, that's really interesting. The color and the way those, lines kind of mimic each other over space thanks i i that was definitely also one of the like attractions to that moment um was was were those tights and like thinking about the sort of that very dynamic like dark graphic thing happening in the middle of this like sort of quiet little moment um and so there's a couple of the time lapse ones and in that one where my wife iska is tucking in 
uh, the shirt of our son. Mm-hmm. It, that one was the most kind of like, there's no, it, it bounces back between the moments the most. Like, because he's turning away, right? Right. And then he's turning too, so it's, right. it's more than just like the edge moving, it's actual movement. Right? And finding out how to be able to describe Iska's face mm-hmm. in a way that was um, honestly the most like satisfying. Um, it, it's like the second ghost versus like what right. actually would have been like the final state of her um pose yeah. in that in those moments if i'd done it literally literally from like stage one stage two stage three it's kind of like stage all the different stages are happening concurrently and right. sort of like are they're painting decisions that are making the image happen versus like being literal to the way the time actually you know went from beginning to end yeah i think it's really interesting because it builds this very subtle um it's not really tension, but this idea of time moving and and just the idea of... I mean, if you had a, a picture of a mother and a child, you would get the sense of, you know, that's a specific time in, in that child's life and that mm-hmm. size. And we all know how quickly children grow and right. you're capturing a moment. But this is literally capturing a few moments. Mm-hmm. And then there's a relationship to kind of, you know, the shuddering of like taking a few pictures at a similar time, which we can all do on our phones now too, which is kind of interesting, but it's totally painted in a different way. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to think about, you know, um, capturing movement in a very micro scale, but you also do animations too, where you're doing time lapse, right? right? You're doing time lapse. Yeah. So that's another one of the things that was kind of like a, a starting point for these was thinking about rather than have, you know, I, I've been doing this for a number of years where making the paintings, I just take a picture mm-hmm. like at different varied stages of the process and then put it together. It's basically like a, you know, six second um, video or animation. And I like the idea of actually animating the painting before the animation happened. Yeah. So it was sort of like, again, like one of those things where it's like a reversal of the idea where right. none of the animations of these have turned out to be like, quite as they they didn't influence the animation in a way that mm-hmm. I sort of was hoping or thought would be cool but I like the idea of like you go you have a few little like jumping off points and hopefully if you jump in a different direction or jump in reverse it's going to give you a different product and that that was that was one of the uh one of the ideas was that the animation would be like the still of the painting as opposed to the animation after the fact yeah that said, have you ever thought about doing, um, taking video and rotoscoping a video to where you could be sort of changing the mm-hmm. actual video? Whereas in this, you're, I imagine you're working, do you work from photographs? Yeah, also? I work from photographs. Yeah, so you're, you're changing those photographs. You're kind of tweaking things. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, I mean, you are like an animator, you make animations. No, 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 I don't know well, at that. least from what I've seen, they seem very like real, legit animations. Very cool. Um, my mine was more started out of like wanting to have a literal description mm-hmm. of the pieces in to have in a setting like this in a gallery setting or something right. where I wasn't able to kind of maybe let someone know what the process was. Mm-hmm. It seemed like a way to sort of reveal what I was doing yeah so 
I, typically, and I actually don't know where the, the screen is here, but typically there's like an iPad or, you know, a few years ago it was like an actual TV. The animation runs when I have you a show. See it. Yeah. So that someone could look at the paintings or look at the collages and then look at that if they were more interested. And hopefully that would create a back and forth. Like I like to think, I, I, the way that I really want to make paintings is the way that like Degas would make a painting where you can't help but kind of have an intimate experience with it because you're being drawn in. You're like in, inspecting the marks and you're looking at it as um, something that should be investigated. And in that investigation, you actually become emotionally attached mm -hmm. or you have like a, a, an experience other than just observing it. Right. Um, you're kind of part of the process. Right. Or you're privy to that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that revealing the process always makes something better. Mm -hmm. It's like watching a movie. I love I love movies, but as much as I love movies, I also love like how, like the how-to part of the, the scenes. Yeah, the behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah. Like I can watch those for hours. Right. Even though I, I know it's all green screen or whatever, like, or, you know, I just like when things are dissected. Yeah, and process is interesting, yeah. you know, like how did we get to this point? Like exactly. how did it make it here? Yeah, because I thought about when I was, I think early on when I saw your work, it reminded me a little bit of um, another artist that I'm really into. His name's uh, Takagi Masakatsu. I don't mm. know if you know I him. Don't. He's a Japanese artist and he does um, video work. Mm -hmm. and, um, but he's a musician primarily. Mm. And uh, he does these videos that he takes of like kids at the park or just mm -hmm. like day-to-day -day scenes and then abstracts them and kind of blows them out into this... Um, you know, otherworldly feel to it, but they're very ethereal, mm -hmm. you know, and there's something really soothing about the sound of these kids playing and mm. then seeing cool. this abstracted video going on that mm -hmm. he, he does kind of like the effects on top of the video. And, um, but it, it's totally different, but there's a similar vibe, I think, to these pieces. Like there's mm. something that resonates about that. Maybe it's, there are children in your images mm -hmm. a lot of times and there's this kind of, um, I don't know, it's not innocence, but it, there's this sort of quiet calm with the world or something, you know, that they're inhabiting that I think is similar in, in some of his, the feelings of his videos. Thank you. That, that, I mean, that's definitely a, a, um, a mood that I would want to capture is mm -hmm. that, um, is definitely that there is, there's so much going on in everybody's lives and it's so easy to ignore like small little moments, but so I've been, I like the idea of making paintings that are not necessarily narrative as like single, singular objects, but that there actually is like potential for narrative as like a series grows and changes. Right. Or, you know, just accumulates. Basically, by accumulating more and more work, you're adding, like, to the story of being, of who you are as an artist. And I think that's a very, like, simple, it's not necessarily the, the most, like, um, intellectual way to approach things, but I think it also allows me to sort of get in and do, always have something to work on, always have a way to, uh, like, pick things apart and, and see where I want to go. Right. Um, and one of the, 
I've always loved Richard Linkletter's um, films. Waking Life. Yeah. Waking Life, exactly. I mean, you can totally see it in these, possibly. Um, but that also, like, when Boyhood came out, yeah. I was like, it made me so, like, feel, like, feel pretty confident in a funny way that, like, somebody who I really love, the work that they do, is approaching things in a in a similar way it's just yeah. like by building this narrative slowly 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 of like not not a lot happens in that movie necessarily but so much happens yeah. and it's like hugely for me it was like very emotional to see this game. oh my god it's i know i, I, I love it i have it's, to see it i can't wait. i've actually only seen it once mm -hmm. because it was it was so it hit me so hard that I am not ready to go back. Yeah. And it, not a lot happens, but yeah. it's just like you can't help. You see this whole family like grow up before your eyes and change. And it's just, I thought it was spectacular. Yeah. He's one of my favorites. Yeah. He's yeah. great. Yeah. Waking Life. I can, that's one. I yeah. don't watch these days. I don't watch as many movies as I did when I was in college. I sure. used to just every night rent movies. Right. Um, but but Waking Life's one of those ones that I can go back to and watch it over and totally. over and catch something new each time. Because not only visually, the resonance between the conceptual you know, totally. thread amongst it and then the visuals. I know, I love the, the very like abstract passages where they're just talking about stuff. I can listen to that sh stuff forever, yeah. even though, I mean, you know, it's very, I don't know if existential is the right word to describe this kind of talking that he, that yeah. or dialogue in that yeah. film, yes. but yeah. it's very like appealing to me. Yeah. The kind of, and I think that also when you make work that's like pretty quiet, it's, it's, um, it doesn't necessarily reflect what's happening while you're making it. Like, I, I, I sort of feel like I need to make work like this. And if I was making other work, it would it would be, like, unsettling to my whole life. Not to say that this is just, like, purely therapeutic, but yeah. it, there is a huge... I'm a very habitual person, and when I don't get to go to studio, it's, like, traumatic for yeah. me. Like, I really get uncomfortable. See, I think that might be maybe where... Uh, this is totally probably not the case but I think we might be the last generation of people who think that or can work that way mm. because of our attention span may not have been tweaked like it is nowadays <laughs> where there's such a shorter attention span it seems these wow, days really? to, to sort of work over time on uh -huh. you know because I I look at Van Gogh and I love Van Gogh because mm -hmm. I can see him working over time thinking over right. all these paintings and right the changes he made and that's really interesting to me that's a very linear kind of historical walking right. through someone's images and i don't know if that's really the way people are digesting images anymore but but yeah i mean if, it's true like even something like instagram you you can go to somebody's feed and look back on what they've done but mm -hmm. really like once it's gone past that like first initial like few hours where people are like looking back through their feed mm -hmm. it's gone yeah no it's it, it's like it's so temporary yeah but we like instagram because we can go back in our feed and see those old ones but i think younger people like snapchat because they don't want anything to do with it right they I don't, want I, it snapchat gone. is just, i don't even understand <laughs> it's totally that's what it is though. I, th yeah. I think that's the phenomenon is huh. they don't want that linear history of images right like younger students they just that snapchat it's like nope it's here it's gone 
and that's how they kind of their relationship with technology. Maybe it has to be that you're way. Blow, you're blowing my mind, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you can see it, but I'm like, my head is shaking. But maybe that's how they have to have a relationship with technology since they're inundated. We weren't, we were never inundated as kids, uh, or at least I wasn't. I had Atari, but that was, you know, here yeah, and there. I mean, but you it, know, but it's also the, like, there's always a potential of, like, older people looking at what's going on with a younger generation being like, what is, ha what's happening there? Right. You know, like, that was, like, with MTV and Tarantino, I remember them being like, and it's just so fast. How can you possibly yeah, keep yeah. up? Like, that was what, what people were concerned with right. in terms of the way art was being made then. And I can't think of any movie I've ever watched where the editing was too fast. Right. And that seems like a ridiculous, like, yeah. like criticism or concern. But, but you actually probably, you have a lot more exposure to young people making art than I do since you're a teacher. Like, I don't... Well, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing or a critical thing. I mm -hmm. think it's just a difference in approach. It's almost like the wiring, our mm -hmm. brains are becoming, and it's not just younger people, it's us too. Like we're, we oh, come totally. out of a moody movie and we used to just talk to each other for a while right. about it. We come out of a movie now and we check our phones. Right. And now we're going off onto, oh, this email, I got to respond to. You know right. what I mean? Oh, and totally. That, that affects our brains and the way yeah. that we think and in, in the the sort of circuitry and how it's, things it's, line up. It's definitely sometimes too interconnected. I feel like I feel that where I'm just like, why, why do I need to get to the, back to all these email? Where yeah. like you do, you feel like you know, it's almost like it, you have to be polite. Yeah. But like then you ignore the people that you're with. Well, to so my to like, my point, maybe that's why Snapchat is so awesome, because you take it and it's done. Right. You don't. There's no commit. There's no. You know. Well, how do people see it? They just they can see it in their feed for like a couple of seconds and then it's gone. There's no saving of it. It's like right. you're just experiencing what's going right. on. I mean, I don't do it, so I don't really. Yeah, know I don't know either. I, I looked at it once. I think I have an account, but I was just like, "What's <laughs> what's here?" <laughs> there was no, but there's nobody connected to it, so right, I guess right. I wasn't getting anything. Yeah, we don't get it. Yeah. yeah, but I think maybe that is. So when I see younger artists and their, you know, their faces in their phone all the time, and they're mm -hmm. they're painting from pictures on their phone that are two inches by two inches, I'm thinking. Well, maybe this is just the way they're going right. to encounter information and, and that they need to navigate that the best way possible to make the most interesting work mm -hmm. they possibly can. I do think that there's something cool. I mean, and this is maybe like more basic as a like transitional thing for how I deal with my phone. There's something very cool about how informal portraiture can can be now. Because yeah. you can just like literally take a picture or like something that is almost like an afterthought mm -hmm. and then it can become a painting and that is totally not the way painting has been for yeah. forever where it's like you know someone like Alex Katz like it's a huge plan yeah. it's like days and weeks of building up to the moment where he gets up there and then paints the thing mm -hmm. so to have it be something that that is more like casual is pretty cool I I think yeah, I, I like I like that it's it's more that feels more modern like Right. We, we definitely as like people are not as formal and not as polite and it would make sense that our artwork should follow that you yeah. know well the process to get to the image back then was a lot harder totally but now it's a lot easier but now it must be so much harder well it is so much harder we know it because there's so many images there's yes. so many things to choose from so now it's like what do you how do you filter out all this noise and sit in your studio and make something and feel you know, like this is the image that I'm making right now. Right. You know, I feel like I have to. Like, I mean, and I, there's got to be different person. <coughs> excuse me, personality types too. Mm -hmm. 
where like I'm sure that there will be maybe the percentage of people that want to like it, it in some ways it's like I want to be by myself I want to go and have some it's like an introverted thing where I just want to go and not think about other shit that's going on and other people and other needs and it's, I don't know, I don't think it's selfish necessarily, it's actually just like, I know myself enough that I need to be by myself. Yeah, well, here's and, good news on that point real quick. My wife just told me about a study that she read that said that intelligent people, like the higher your IQ, mm -hmm. the more happy you are by yourself. Uh, Without that's a lot of friends. I'll, yes, I'm very happy. I'm, I'm extremely happy You're by myself. <laughs> You're a genius. You're a genius. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I just thought that was really funny. It's like, oh, yeah, the, the, you know, the smarter you are, the less yeah. need you have to be around a lot of people. Anyway, sorry, tangent. No, that, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple things before we wrap up that I wanted to ask you about mm -hmm. is first on uh, related to your artwork, what do you have coming up? What are you working on now? What are, your, what are you doing? I am in the midst of like recovery. You know, I, I, I don't know if this happens to you, but whenever I have a show, I always have to kind of like Step back. get my bearings yeah. and, and see what's going on. So th that's sort of where my mind is. I, I still have been trying to work with a, like the same frequency that I have been doing. Um, do you turn to music at that point too? Do you kind of, like for me Sometimes. and my work, when I'm burned out on painting, I'll mm -hmm. go to animation. And then yeah. when I can't look at the screen anymore, I start doing collage or, you know what right. I mean? Like I find a balance between different ways of working. I mean, do you mix that up at all or? You know, I, I do. I, and I have been writing a bunch of stuff, but I'm also sort of like one thing that in a funny way, this show has made me realize is like, People have often talked to me about like, how can you do music and art at the same time? Like, it's a difficult thing to put in the, the, the like, I don't know, intellectual concern or emotional like weight or whatever of, of putting in the time to, to make stuff mm -hmm. that's like expressive. But I think the really challenging part of it is, and the difficulty of doing like more than one creative occupation is actually having the energy to do the kind of bullshit that surrounds yeah. those occupations. Right. Like, I love making music. I also do not want to or like want uh, love the lifestyle of being a musician necessarily. Yeah. Like going on the road, doing all that stuff. I did it when I was a kid. It was super fun. But I also did it for a pretty short time then because I was like, this is totally not going to suit me in the long run. Like, right. like I said, I need to be by myself. I can't sit in a van with all these right. guys like, for days. I'm a genius. You don't need to stinky <laughs> people in a van for two weeks going across the country. That's right. <laughs> no, but seriously, like, it was, I needed to be able to, to not, I mean, all my work is also like, I'm a homebody. Yeah. So like, it was a, it was like the antithesis of what I sort of like was capable of doing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have been writing material and I have a whole record that I wrote with, with this band that I've been playing with. Um, and I'm like, I, you know, I don't know how to make it happen. I, like in, in the, I know how to make it happen if you do like the grassroots, hit the road, you know, right. really like push yourself and hustle. But I don't want to do that. Right. Um, so it's, it's sort of a matter of like finding a comfortable way of releasing music, making music. And, and, and producing stuff in that way. And then also really like doing painting and finding shows and stuff. I mean, but it, it's hard to, 
that's what's hard about doing both. Yeah. Is is actually like maintaining the the business and the focus on two very like challenging careers. Yeah. And I mean painting has always taken a priority over music. Mm-hmm. Um at least since, you know, when I was in Black Dice we were not making money. It was not a uh, I don't you know a, a band that could necessarily like you make a living off of it wasn't a career um, choice it, it was wasn't a career choice yeah it was like you know it was fun because it was like a gang of dudes and we were like going around making music and playing in shows and getting to see parts of the country that I wouldn't have been able to, to do otherwise um, super fun but definitely like felt like I outgrew it in terms of actually being able to like tolerate it right um so I don't know what I'm doing, I guess is the long, long answer. Like, I'm just going to go back to studio. I don't have any shows coming up. Um, I'm probably going to mess around with some mono prints and maybe I have a, bought an etching press nice. this, this fall. So I might try some woodblock prints, cool. which I thought would be yeah, fun that'd be great. and different. And also still kind of connect to the graphic uh, side of the work a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really just kind of like seeing what happens. I, I, I don't know. This whole show was a surprise, all thanks to you, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it uh, looks great. Congratulations thank you. on thank it. Thank you. And uh, last question, for some reason, I'm curious. Your favorite guitar right now. What do you My have? My favorite guitar? What do you play? Well, I have um, a Dove, a Gibson Dove. That's mm-hmm. like a, I think it's a 78. Mm-hmm. That is definitely like my absolute favorite what color object is it? in the world. Um, and and guitar to play, it's it's like a I don't know the right uh, word for it. it. It's like a pale um, wood, mm-hmm. <laughs> pale wood. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm also not like a a techie in terms of knowing what I, I don't even know what the hell it is at this point. I bought it and it was like oh I got this thing. Yeah, and yeah. It's just like a, a really beautiful. It's got beautiful tones. Is it a hollow body? It's an acoustic. It's acoustic. Yeah, it's acoustic. Okay, cool. So it's really, you know, it's like, it's kind of like, it, it's like the singer-songwriter guitar of the 70s. So oh. like, you'll see, if you go on like YouTube and you look, Neil Diamond will be like playing, playing one, one and like, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of that, that, that I don't play it. I, I mean, I'd be psyched to write songs like Neil Diamond, but <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I do a lot of finger picking and stuff when I play it. So it, yeah. it's just very like... The neck is very easy to play, mm-hmm. and it sounds beautiful. Cool. Nice. Well, thanks for taking the time out to chat. Thank you. Thank awesome. you for having me. Glad we finally made it happen. Yeah, and where can, where can people check out your music online? I guess SoundCloud. Like, I, I don't, it's Sebastian Blank on SoundCloud. I have stuff. Cool. Um, and maybe also under the name Twin Fog. Mm-hmm. And then I post Spotify. stuff on Instagram. Spot, I do have stuff on Spotify. I have a solo record on Spotify. Cool. Um, and I don't know. I don't even use iTunes anymore. Do people use iTunes for music? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right, cool man. Thanks a lot. Thank you. It was great to chat. Yeah, right. my pleasure.